Okay, well, uh, welcome, folks, listeners, uh, the podcast audience. Hello. Hello. This is uh, Champs of the Lit, episode number nine. Uh, I'm Max. I'm Mark. As... Oh, oh, no. Oh, you didn't let me say it. I'm Max, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mark. Hello. Hello. Okay. Uh, so, folks... This episode, we're going to be talking about the book Heaven by Mako Kawakami. Um, Mark, do you want to talk a little bit about Kawakami? Sure. Or do you want to do... Uh, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll give the brief bit. rundown about uh, Mako Kawakami. She yeah. was a singer, apparently, first. She like released a couple albums. And then she was most famous for a while as a blogger. Uh, according to Wikipedia, her blog got over 200,000 hits a day for a while. Um, but uh, then, hold, hold, hold there for a second. Do, do we know what kind of stuff she was writing? No, I, like I, I did not investigate. Okay. Um, I wonder my, if it still exists. That would be that would be kind of interesting. It might still exist. Okay. Yeah. She she writes a lot of poetry and short stories, and that was how she first got published. So I would imagine the blog is sort of either fiction or sort of memoiry reflections on her life, as opposed to like you know political commentary or something. Right. Um, and then her first novella was published in 2007. She was 31 at the time. And then Heaven is her first novel that was published in 2010. It's apparently technically part of a loosely connected trilogy. Um, so it's the first and then the second would be Breast and Eggs, which I think is her most well-known novel, uh, made kind of a splash in the States. And then All the Lovers of the Night was released um, in yeah. 2011, I think. So yeah, Heaven... I've, I've listened to Bread, Breast and Eggs. That was actually, that was the first book of hers that I listened to um, without realizing... I'm kind of surprised, honestly, that they oh, really? <laughs> they call it a trilogy. It is a loosely uh, connected trilogy. Yeah. yeah. So uh, Heaven was shortlisted for the, or is shortlisted, I guess, currently for the 2022, 2022 International Booker Prize. I don't really know how that works since it was, I don't know how recently it was translated. I don't know how the years work for when a book is eligible. But anyway, it's shortlisted. Um, and apparently she said that Thus Spoke Zarathustra by Nietzsche was... Um, and in, like may, maybe the inspiration for the book, which I definitely picked up on and want to talk about. All right. And, and the, in terms of the story, um, the basic story outline, uh, there are two, uh, two middle schoolers. Um, they're 14 years old. Uh, do we not know the narrator's name? Don't we know? The no, he, name? we just know his nickname eyes. Okay. Yeah, so so basically it's the story of these two young people, a boy and a girl, who are kind of relentlessly bullied by their classmates. Um, it takes place during the school year. I don't know if it's the entire school year. Maybe it's like six to eight months. At some point, at a part in the story, they yeah, there's go a, on the, summer it, it break. It goes over a summer, yeah. So mm -hmm. it's like the, I don't know, last bit of second semester and then summer and then first bit of the next semester. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, you know they're they're bullied because the the narrator character who I'd say he's the main character of the book. I mean, yeah, it, it's, all, it's all it's all it's all told him. from his perspective. Yeah. You know, we we don't get into the head of of anybody else in the story, so it's all you know how he's seeing the world. Um, so he has a lazy eye, and that's that's more or less why he seems to be picked on by the other kids, or at yeah. least that's what they sort of focus on. Um, and they call him Eyes for that reason. And then the uh, the girl Kojima, uh, they call her Hazmat because she she kind of stinky. Uh, well, 
it seems like you know stinky she, and dirty and, and she's dirty. yeah sort of like literally no. like dirt on her face right. uh, doesn't wash her clothes right doesn't seem to shower very much if right. at all they think she's poor and that's part of it too i guess but you know for for whatever reason and we're not ever told explicitly like when you know when do they start getting bullied because there there are a few points in the story where the the narrator reflects you know back on like knowing his like his main bully you know earlier in uh like elementary school Mm -hmm. um so it's not clear like when when their relationship to their uh fellow students changes and they become the the target of this kind of harassment and bullying um and the other two sort of central characters are Nonomia, who's the main bully. He's sort of the the class, um, what would you call him? Protégé? Yeah. You I know? mean, I think, I think he's kind of an interesting, I feel like he defies archetypes a little bit because <laughs> usually, yeah, he, he's like extremely charming. Everybody loves him. He's the most popular boy in school. Mm-hmm. He's very athletically gifted, but he's also very intelligent, gets top marks on all of his exams without yeah. like he, he leads the class and everything. But then is also this like kind of sadistic evil bully, mm-hmm. which at least at least in, in like American high schools, I think those are like three different people, usually like the person <laughs> who's scoring the best in all the exams and the most popular person socially and the biggest bully, um, whereas he combines all of them. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that, but yeah, you're, you're kind of right. Or at least uh, the sort of like the popular portrayal of a bully is usually just like somebody who's like physically really strong and then, you know, uses that to like uh, physically bully right. his classmates. Yeah. And then the other character, uh, Momose, who's Nanomia's friend, best friend, maybe accessory bully. He's uh, uh, you, you get the sense that Nanomia like is trying to play up for Momo, like Numia is trying to impress Momos a lot. And Momos is kind of like hanging in the background and it's not clear how much he cares about any of it. Mm-hmm. There's this definite dynamic between Nanomia, the main bully, and Momose, uh, where, yeah, there's a sense in which Nanomia seems so like he wants to impress Momose. Um, almost like he's like doing the bullying in part to like get the attention of Momose. Yeah. Momose Uh, is like strikingly handsome and mm -hmm. also like extremely intelligent. It's like the two of them always vying for the top spot in exams and stuff. And he's also, they mentioned this just briefly at one point in the story that uh, he maybe joined the school like in middle school or like late in elementary school. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, uh, he's like a latecomer to the social situation. Yeah. You get the sense that like the narrator character and Nanomia have like known each other you know, maybe since like kindergarten. Right. Um, or like first grade. Um, whereas Mama say he's uh, you know, latecomer to the school, um, and still kind of like an outsider. And yeah, there's interesting kind of interpersonal dynamics there that like on the surface, you know, they're just kind of two bullies and you know, number one and number two, or you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I think you could also mention other characters like uh the narrator's mom or stepmom plays an mm-hmm. important part in the story. I don't think we ever find out her name, um, but there's some interesting things to sort of think about, like what role she plays in the story and what her relationship is with her son. Um, and then his father, you know, it's a similar, he's sort of kind of off script, but he pops up here and there. I mean, he's basically an absent father, but 
he, I don't know, that relationship dynamic also plays an important part in the story, I think. Yeah, yeah I think that's um, true. Uh, yeah, and there are others, but, you know, that's that's the basic outline, and it's, it's more or less about um, the relationship between the narrator and Kojima, um, the the uh, the female character. Uh, early on the story, the narrator finds a note from Kojima in his desk. He doesn't know it's her yet, uh, but the note just asks, you know, do you want to be friends? Or like, I think we should be friends. And they start this kind of pen pal relationship. And eventually they meet up like at a school playground and he finds out that it's Kojima, the other, you know, the other student that's been bullied, that's being bullied Mm -hmm. is the one that, you know, is writing to him. And uh, and then they sort of develop a a friendship, but it's uh, it's not um, like during during the regular like school hours, you know, they go out of their way not to. Yeah, they don't acknowledge each other at all. They act as though they've never met or talked or anything. So no one knows that they have this like outside of school or sort of secret note pen pal friendship. Yeah. And they go on some like outings together. And um, yeah, the I'd say that's the the main kind of drama of the story is their relationship. And then also, you know, because they're both being bullied, you know, Kojiman has this very, I guess, distinct or interesting, you know, it's a theory about, you know, why they're being bullied and like what that means that they're being bullied and like what what's the significance of the of their being bullied, you know, whereas the narrator is more just like, you know, well, it sucks. And, you know. Yeah, I mean, the, the narrator is very passive. Um, like Kojima basically initiates this friendship and he just sort of goes along with it and does whatever she proposes that they do, but he doesn't take the initiative in general to propose that they do things. Um, I think the way I see the structure of the book in a lot of ways is as uh, the narrator is standing in for the reader and trying to understand the competing philosophies of Kojima and Ninomiya, uh, or mm-hmm. sorry, of, of Kojima and Momose. Momose yeah. And... Um, I mean, that's like sort of the the where the inspiration of the book is being Nietzsche comes in. Um, I guess I don't know. I don't know if we want to get into the philosophy now or or talk a little bit more about the book as a whole. Um, um, I don't know if it matters. We we could do the philosophy. I I think I think you're right. And also like um, you, you can outline for us what what their like two kind of theories are. But you know the. I think you're you're definitely right that the the narrator sort of stands in for the reader and it's you know it's Kojima has this theory and she tells it to the narrator and in a similar way Momose has this theory and he tells it to the narrator you know and it's it's, it's not like Momose and Kojima are interacting and like no you know hashing out you know who who actually understands like human behavior better right so the narrator is sort of forced with like kind of the problem of evil um, or mm-hmm. like the problem of human suffering, which you can abstract to be like human existence, right? Like he is he is going to school every day and being humiliated and physically like hurt and, you know, to some degree almost tortured. Um, you know, uh, and it's, it's awful. Go ahead. I was just going to say that, <laughs> you know, if, if you haven't read the book and uh, I, I, I first, I listened to this book maybe a couple of years ago. 
And I suggested that we do an episode on it because we were looking for kind of short books uh, to do episodes uh-huh. on. And, you know, I had enjoyed it. Um, but I had I had kind of forgotten the 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 intensity of the bullying in the story and that sort of aspect. It's a bit bad. So, yeah. So just to like, you know, if you haven't read the story to sort of paint a picture of like the experiences of these two students, it's not just like, you know, calling uh, calling the narrator names or, you know, making fun of them. But it's like real like physical abuse, you know, most significantly, there's this (laughs) point in the story where uh, Nanomia, the main, you know, bullying figure, he forces the narrator to put a uh, volleyball over his head, like he cuts it open, then puts it over his head. And then they play human soccer with the narrator. And the narrator ends up like falling down on the onto the ground and has like and he doesn't break his nose, but there's blood everywhere. You know, for months afterwards, he has problems, you know, kind of breathing, <laughs> yeah. and just being in physical discomfort. So it's like that kind of level of like physical, but also, you know, there's also the sort of psychological element of, you know, constantly calling him names or, you know, kicking him or doing whatever. So just, you know, if you, if yeah, you yeah. haven't read the story and you just hear that it's a story about bullying, well, you know, when we talk about bullying, we're really talking about bullying in the story. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, it was it was funny. I remember you suggested we did the book and then you reread the book uh, prior to me reading it. And you were like, wow, that was a lot more disturbing than I remember <laughs> it being. <laughs> yeah, I was sort of hesitant, like I, I, in particular, because it's I mean, th- they're 14, so it's not like they're seven or eight. But, mm-hmm. you know, they're still like young adolescents. And oh yeah there, it's like extremely there's, there's traumatizing a, yeah there's a level of like disturbingness to to the whole like bullying aspect um that i think goes above and beyond because of sort of the age of 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 the characters in the story yeah i mean it's like like they'll tie him up and leave him in a closet they'll make him run laps over and over again they'll make him like they make him eat chalk at some point and stick chalk mm-hmm. up his nose um it, yeah it's just sort of really sadistic stuff um, so I guess trigger warning for anybody who is, uh, yeah, uh, you know, sensitive to that kind of thing. You may not want to read this book. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, maybe, maybe we should have let off with that. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'll, I'll also say I didn't, I didn't love the book for the first sixty percent. I think the sort of slow development of Kojima and the narrator's relationship of like two sort of outcasts having a pen pal thing and just talking about their mundane lives and. And stuff, I don't know. I found it a little bit boring. It was like a bad combination of boring and sad, uh, where like nothing was really <laughs> happening, but the few things that did happen, like it wasn't like conflict where you can like get engaged. It was just wow, this kid is getting bullied really terribly and his life is bad. But about 60% of the way through, he has this conversation with Momose where Mom- like he's like, Why are you guys bullying me? Um, and and he assumes it's because of his eye. And then Momose lays out his philosophy. Um and then Kojima later lays out her philosophy. And then I was fully engaged in the, in the last like third of the book was was great. And I, I really enjoyed it and made me think a lot, uh, which is why I think it was doing worth doing an episode on. So I guess with, with all that said, let me lay out the um, philosophies, which is uh, Momose is essentially a nihilist. And he sort of takes the like Nietzsche approach of um, the strong dominate and everybody just does whatever they want in life. And if you are stronger, you will do what you want. It's like you will, you will, you have the capacity to 
take the things that you want and make the things that you want to happen, happen. And there is no good. There is no bad. Um, it's just everybody running around doing whatever they want. And the reason that, uh, that the narrator is getting bullied is because they want to bully him. They find it entertaining. It's a way of passing the time and, you know, in the way, like just life is just sort of passing time and there's no meaning in anything. One way to pass the time is to torture people. He said, you know, it could be worse. There are other people who are even more sadistic. There are people who are less sadistic. Uh, and he said, you could stop it. You could stand up for yourself and, um, you know, you could hit us back or whatever, and you choose not to. And so we keep doing it because we are the strong, uh, which is sort of the Nietzsche Ubermensch, you yeah. Know. And the, the narrator, you know, he keeps on going back to this idea of, well, you know, don't you know that it's wrong? And wouldn't you like you have people that you care about and mm -hmm. would you want them to be treated this way? And yeah, but Momo say, you know, basically says, you know, yeah, I, I have a sister and I love her and I'd be really angry if she gets treated that way. But that has nothing to do with, you know, my relationship to you and how I treat <laughs> you and and whether you deserve or don't deserve, you know, right. to he, get bullied. He, he... He, he he rejects the idea of any kind of ethics and mm -hmm. he also rejects the idea of any kind of like universality that just because I yeah have sympathy for my sister doesn't mean I have to have that sympathy for you. Right. Um, I love my sister. I want to protect her. I don't love you. I don't want to protect you. So, you know, like what's your problem? Um, so then Kojima, I think is a very sympathetic character for the first half of the book because you see her as a kindred spirit to, um, to the narrator but then it kind of emerges that she's she's very different uh it turns out that she's actually pretty wealthy and that her mom uh divorced her very poor father and then married a very wealthy stepfather so she has means and she chooses to stay dirty and look poor as a kind of action of solidarity with her father that um she like deliberately is not bathing and she's deliberately rubbing dirt on her face and not washing her clothes and making things wrinkled and making herself like her hair is wild and mm -hmm. you know tangled and all that kind of thing and that's all a choice on her part as solidarity with her dad yeah i mean you know the narrator he's got a lazy eye as something that um at least initially he doesn't think you know medically there can be you can do anything about right and, and that's the reason he's getting bullied whereas with uh the kojima character that's something that struck me too is that you know Yes, she's getting bullied, and that's definitely unfair. She doesn't deserve it, no matter how you know stinky <laughs> or unwashed she that she is. But you know, she's choosing to do this, right? Yeah, and then she so she has this kind of philosophy that that actually gives them strength. That they're that it, it makes them good people that they're being bullied in opposition to the bad people who are bullying them, and um. And then she gets upset with the narrator when he, so he, he visits the doctor uh, to deal with his nose that was um, severely injured during the uh, human soccer incident. And the doctor says, oh, you've got a lazy eye, you know, we, we can fix that. And so the narrator, you know, this is potentially life-changing for him and it's not mm -hmm. actually that expensive of a surgery. So he talks to Kojima and he says, hey, you know, I'm considering doing the surgery. And she feels deeply betrayed. Um, that he would, you know, walk away from the thing that makes both of them different in the same way and that makes both of them bullied. Um, and she tries to convince him that, like, that he he is better, like his eye makes him who he is, and he is better for having his eye that way, 
which yes. I like had a really visceral reaction to, particularly because his eye isn't just an aesthetic thing, like it prevents him from seeing. Uh, and so he like has essentially no depth perception. Uh, and so yeah. she's trying to like convince him to live in this like permanently disabled state just so they can both be like choose to be bullied. Yeah, for like a kind of theoretical, <laughs> for a kind of theoretical good, or at least yeah. as, as Kojima sees it. Yeah, so um, I take... Sorry, and, and and I just can say, and yeah, basically, like their relationship ends after that point. Yeah, like she stops speaking to him; she won't respond to. I think he writes her some letters, mm-hmm. um, and they do ultimately have one more interaction. But you find out that it's been uh, orchestrated, ma- manufactured, yeah, orchestrated yeah. by the uh, class bullies. Um, but yeah, she has this very black and white way of seeing things too. I mean, sort of like Momose that basically uh you know i think at one point in this discussion that they have when he's when the narrator's telling her that he's thinking about getting the surgery um you know she says oh well, you're just like them you know the, the the minute he thinks about you know changing this aspect of his physical appearance which is you know or at least seems to be the main reason he gets bullied you know she can no longer you know she no longer accepts him as being yeah. you know, the same person yeah, so I, I take her to represent ha- Nietzsche's version of Christian ethics, which mm-hmm. I think maybe is true for some versions of Christian ethics in some eras. That's right. Nietzsche had this idea of like that, like this whole Christian ethic of like the meek will inherit the world and, right. you know, that that was really damaging to society. Right. Yeah, and there's a, right. So yeah, there's this idea that like suffering is 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 good. Like like blessed blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who are cursed. Blessed are those who suffer. Who are poor. Um, and so you know, and and I think it's less common now. But in early, there were times in medieval or early Christian eras where um, you know suffering was deliberately inflicted upon people as a form of uh, sort of sanctification or purification or a way of getting closer to God or, or being a better person. Right. Yeah, that, you know, sort of, yeah. I mean, even now, sort like, of self self flagellation. Yeah. Or yeah, big... less intensely, like vows of poverty, right? Or essentially, yeah. you know, similar to that. Or you, you could argue fasting as a way of kind of, um, you know, uh, making yourself suffer as a way of getting closer to God. And so Kojima to me represents that, right? She, she is choosing to be meek. She's choosing to be the, the dirty, the poor, the outcast person because that is that is who is truly good, truly righteous. Um, and the narrator is sort of stuck between these two competing visions and neither of them strike him as right. And I think I, I uh, empathize with that. Like to me, neither of those seem like the right approach to how you want to live your life. Um, right. either arbitrarily like making other people suffer and believing there's no kind of sense of ethics but also not i don't know i, I don't particularly like the idea that we should all debase ourselves yeah there, there's a scene um it's like right before uh the narrator goes to meet kojima for the last time for what he thinks is going to be like a reunion between them yep. but ends up being this you know orchestrated event uh by the class bullies um and he's having <laughs> well there's some uh i don't know if i want to get into that but but he has this like kind of like what do you call it like a living dream vivid dream he has this kind of vivid dream mm-hmm. and if i'm if i'm mistaken like there's like or is it actually like when they're getting kind of like tortured by their classmates that he has this 
there's a there's a way in which like the like the voices of Momose and the voice of Kojima. Yeah, like, you get this kind of like, kinda, like devil, devil on his shoulder, angel on his shoulder uh-huh. thing. Yeah. And it's I can't remember now, now that I'm saying it. Is it like in I think it actually might be when uh when they're kind of being tortured, they're they're forced to take off all their clothes. Uh, yeah, so, so this is the classmates yeah kind of manufacture this meeting of them at a playground mm-hmm. and um ninomiya decides that his fun he's going to have and getting the two of them together is to force them to have sex in front of everyone mm-hmm. and so he uh gets the narrator to take off his clothes gets kojima to take off her clothes mm-hmm. um and yeah so so i think the the narrator is sort of he seems willing to put up with a lot or basically anything when it comes to him, but he sees Kojima being abused in this way and is like terrified at what they're, you know, potentially going to be forced to do. And so starts yeah. considering more extreme options. Yeah. He picks up a rock at some point and he's ruminating on how it's sharp on one edge. And, you know, you're not quite sure. Is he going to attack, you know, is he going to attack uh, Nanomia or Momose with it? Yep. Or is he going to attack himself with it? Maybe um just to create something to distract everybody and to stop what's happening but yeah i I think it's like in that scene where yeah he has this kind of like i don't know like kind of waking dream almost where like the voices of momose and his sort of nihilist philosophy and kojima and her idea of like the value of you know suffering and getting bullied they're kind of like going in and out of his head and sort of intertwining in his mind. I don't know. Do you yeah. remember this? Or I I remember them both talking. I don't remember them. Uh, like, like, I, I remember think it's the like almost like aspect of it. But it's like they're not actually like they're not actually talking. But the narrator is no, like yeah, imagining yeah, yeah. this conversation in his head as he's witness witnessing the scene uh, play out between Kojima and Nanomia. And yeah, Momose. yeah. I mean, it, the way I sort of pictured it is that yeah sort of devil angel on your shoulder they're both trying to entice him to take different actions or trying to convince him that different things are right and he he i think and ends up not yeah sort of bashing everybody's head in with a rock i think decides (laughs) that that's like not who he is uh i think what happens is really is really interesting because kojima finally sort of displays the power of her approach right that she's been a victim this whole time and it seems like you know, she is just the passive object of everyone else's abuse. Mm-hmm. But I feel like it is finally revealed that no, she chose to be abused, which gives her a power over them that they don't even understand. And so they make her get naked. And then she's just totally unabashed. Yeah. Well, and actually, now that you say that, so like, the, the kids are initially like the, the bullying kids, they're telling the narrator, like uh, Nanomia tells the narrator, now take off her clothes like first mm-hmm. he makes he makes the narrator strip down yep um and then he tells her tells him to take off uh kojima's clothes and that's when he like picks up the rock and he's like contemplating what to do um but kojima is the one that actually ends up taking off her own clothes like she t- she takes action in that way yeah and then like confronts you know confronts nanomia and momose nanomia in particular with uh yeah, with being naked and being yeah. like unashamed, and yeah, she, she starts just, like laughing, like kind of I don't know, maniacally is not the right word, but like 
yeah it's this very like intense laughter where she's yeah. like it's genuinely just like mocking them and right. finding finding their sort of childish antics like right. beneath her and amusing right. and then she walks up to them and she's like stroking their faces the like girls that are with them run away mm-hmm. finally Ninomiya runs away it's also like pouring rain it's a very well, vividly yeah i think she like scene. uh like all the other kids run away you know after she starts <laughs> starts acting this way and then she she starts like stroking uh well first i think it's nanomia like yeah, she's like sort of stroking her chin and then when she goes to do the same thing to momose nanomia like freaks out and uh kicks her to the ground and uh you know i guess they like run away after that yeah so i mean i guess yeah some <laughs> some some lady ends up finding them uh yeah. and uh you know, sort of takes them, gives them clothes, whatever. But I think at least for me, the power of that uh, scene is just that Kojima is kind of like unveiled as being this person who has like an incredible sort of moral authority or incredible kind of will within her, right? That, um, you know, I don't know, sort of the inverse of the will to power, I guess the will to suffering also requires like a very, like a a great amount of uh, kind of iron character. Um, yeah. And that when she displays that and then sort of turns it back on the bullies, the bullies can't handle it, that their approach is actually the kind of weak approach, uh, the easy way through life. And that's that's sort of her argument, right, is that um, they're you know building character through suffering or whatever, whereas the the narrators are actually giving into their desires and thus not uh, you know, developing any real, um, I don't know. I don't know what the right word is for this, but like, yeah, sort of more. Yeah, well, I sort, of, I, I sort of wonder you know, because of the way it's written and because of the way that uh, it's not the final scene of the book, but, um, you know, almost at the end of the book, the way that scene unplays. Um, I think maybe, you know, it's not just like, you know, the the author, I think she's maybe saying that, you know, that is the better way to go about, you know, versus the kind of nihilism of Momose. Yeah. And also like, you know, uh... You know, does it like I think part part of the power of Kojima's like confrontation with Nanomia Momose is that like you sort of know that she's right. Or or maybe like they sort of know that she's right. That like bully like bullying people is like wrong. <laughs> like it's not <laughs> it's not a good thing to do. Like Momose, when he has, you know, his discussion with the narrator and he has this, you know, very nihilistic take on, you know whether the narrator deserves to get bullied or anybody deserves to get bullied and you know why do they do it you know maybe maybe that's just kind of words and like in his heart of hearts he doesn't actually you know believe that does that make sense yeah i I, I, like if they feel like the story kind of takes a opinion on that i I feel like it sort of does i don't i i didn't take it that way i don't (laughs) i i think you can definitely read that into it but i don't to me, the author isn't saying that those boys felt guilty. I think it's just sort of in the world of these two competing philosophies, like even in a world where they do genuinely believe they are genuinely nihilist and they don't believe in any form of ethics, they still are sacrificing something about their own like development. And so they have less power than Kojima does or Kojima's path either builds or requires more kind of force of will. Uh, than their path does. Um, but 
I yeah, I, I also don't think that she's taking the side of Kojima. I mean, I think I think yeah, most people would say like Kojima's side like approach is better than the bully's approach. But I also don't think most people would like, and I don't think the author is trying to say that Kojima is actually like the right way to live your life, right? Yeah, in, in, no, in, yeah, in particular I, I because because it ends with the narrator choosing to get the surgery, which Kojima yeah. was like vehemently opposed to. Yeah, um, and it ends with this what I think is a really beautiful scene where he like walks out. He sees the world in 3D for the first time in his life and then walks into this uh, kind of like swirl of autumn leaves and is just like engulfed in their like magical goldenness. Um, and I thought I thought it was like a really beautiful ending. It's a beautiful scene. And it does feel to me like it's the rejection of Kojima's approach. And then him choosing not to bash their heads in with a rock is the rejection of Ninumi, or of Momose's approach that he's, mm -hmm. he's, he's basically saying like, no these are both wrong and there is you know a different way to live your life yeah no i i could i could yeah i think i think you've convinced me i mean i was sort of <laughs> spitballing on that that's fair yeah <laughs> on that theory uh but i guess i do think there's a way in which like kojima because of the way that like um that final scene with her unfolds like she sort of wins the argument over momose and nanomia and their kind of ni nihilistic approach to life because you know it's it, it, ultimately they're the ones that are made like uncomfortable and like can't bear the situation anymore and right. run away um uh, whereas you know kojima is still there you know at the end of the at the end of the story but yeah. i think i think definitely yeah g given the, the the final part where the narrator does get the surgery and then he has this beautiful experience of being able to see the world you know clearly um, yeah it, it is a rejection of both both uh... so, so there's this funny like sort of afterward a little bit where he's sort of like i never really saw kojima again mm -hmm. and then he also has a statement that's like i never had a friend that understood me in the same way or yeah something yeah. of that effect yeah and i wasn't or sure what like to make of that a friend like her yeah um i i guess I, I took that to mean he never had a friend as close or that understood him as well if you just i guess if it's just a friend like her that could just mean like a weird crazy person who has this very specific philosophy on life and chooses to get bullied like <laughs> yes you never had another friend I, like that I, yeah I, I doubt that <laughs> but and, and so I think it leaves me wondering if yeah I don't know I, I guess it made me feel like the narrator doesn't have that great of a life as he goes on that he's a pretty solitary guy and is sort of lonely and doesn't really have friends despite the fact that he got his eye fixed uh, yeah. I don't know I, th I think that's reading too much into but into like why say that um i guess I, I maybe have to go back back to that scene and think about it some more i i feel like it's more just like kojima was this like kind of singular person in his life and like at a particular time in his life and like right before and also you know sort of connected to like having the surgery which you know may or may not have improved his life in some way or changed it yeah um, but more just that, part. more more just that, like Kojima was this, you know, person that had this profound impact on his life, and he never, there was never anybody else that had the same impact, and and maybe that means that he was like a loner for the rest of life, and you know, maybe never got married <laughs> or anything. But I think that's reading too much into it. You know, I, mean, I think you you could, it's possible that he went on to have a like perfectly normal life or you know even a good life. 
what it felt like it, it reminded me of the scene so there's this scene where she basically says i like your eye and this is his biggest insecurity right this is lazy eye and then she mm. like stares at his eye and says like i like that yeah and yeah and he reflects on like how throughout most of his life like he's always been looked at like because of his eye like people are always looking at him yeah and it's usually with some level of like disgust or discomfort or just like you know they're looking at him. or whatever yeah but then there are these few times, and one of them being the the time that Kojima looked into his eyes and told him, you know, that he really liked her, where he he felt like uh, seen and appreciated and loved for, you know, who he actually is, regardless yeah. of his, I mean, sort of including his defects or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think I think that the comment at the end made me think of that scene, and it made me think like maybe that was the most scene he ever really felt in his life, and he never got to reach that again which like could be a comment on the rest of his life being like sad and lonely or it could be a comment on how truly profound that moment was and because he had his eye fixed afterwards there was no chance for that to happen again because no one could see him with such like an obvious like defect again and still totally accept him yeah but it also like i feel like it was it was more the latter but you know yeah but at least to me her her acceptance of him is really cheapened by the idea that (laughs) she thinks he has to have this defect in order to still be himself right and so now i guess it feels like she's really seeing him yeah although we also don't know um so you know we never get into her head and like what she's thinking about uh like say when that like final scene unfolds and it seems pretty clear that like they never for whatever reason they never interact like after that scene like maybe she you know maybe her parents sort of figure out what's been going on and they pull her out of that school and you know for whatever reason you know they never come in contact again but we don't actually know like in that final scene how kojima is now feeling about the narrator you know maybe when kojima sees the narrator you know he's had had he's been forced to take off all his clothes uh he's standing there in the rain he's holding this rock and you know obviously thinking about what, <laughs> what to do with this this rock and and then she takes the you know the action to you know start taking off her own clothes and you know confronts the uh the bullies uh but we don't know like maybe i think you could interpret it as being like kojima takes those actions because uh like seeing the way that the narrator is being treated in that scene she maybe realizes that oh you know i guess you know, even if he is considering, you know, changing, you know, getting the surgery for his eyes, you know, maybe I do actually still like care for him or, you know, think that, you know, he's a, he's a, he, his friendship is, is worth something to me. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's fair. We don't, we don't really understand her motive for the action that she takes there. It could be she's trying to prevent violence. Uh, it could be that she's trying to protect the narrator. It could be that this is like, I don't know, it could be something totally different where that just seemed like, sort of the right thing to do in that moment i don't know yeah but yeah it, it's totally possible um how you described it yeah so uh, what, what about his mom i think his his mom is is an interesting character don't you think like his, his stepmom yeah and like the kind of role like his relationship to her and like the role that she plays uh in the story uh, she plays an important part particularly at the end too like the way she kind of accepts uh like the sort of they have a I guess it's sort of the penultimate scene because it's a conversation between the narrator and his stepmom right before he goes and gets the surgery. And then the final scene is, you know, after the surgery and seeing the world. Um, Something happened to his dad. 
I feel like I have a vague memory that like his dad somehow leaves the picture and then he's got to choose if he wants to keep living with his stepmom and she's like, I'll keep taking care of you. Or am I just totally imagining that? No, his stepmom, <laughs> she says to him at a certain point that, yeah, it looks like, you know, me and my dad, we're going to split up. You, or me, me, your dad, me yeah. and your dad are going to split up. That's right. She's and anticipating like, would you, would you, you know, would you want to stay with me or not? And that's something that's like going through his mind at the end of the story is you right. know, what's going to happen and would he want to stay with his stepmom? And yeah, his dad is a character that, yeah, he's he's basically absent and like increasingly so as the story progresses. And there are like a few times that he pops up like in the story. I think but... he only shows up once and he comes home and the narrator was like just sort of avoids him. Yeah. The dad avoids them like they're all kind of uncomfortable around each other. Yeah. I think the the narrator sort of comments that like, you know, his dad is always gone. So you sort of presume that he is around sometimes, but the narrator just doesn't talk about it. And then there is that like that one scene between them where basically the narrator is thinking about how much he'd like to like punch him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) As he annoyingly ruffles a newspaper. The stepmom kind of starts out for me as a sort of non-character, you know, like the the peanuts parents were like, (laughs) Uh, you know, she like makes him lunch occasionally or he like needs something from her. He goes to her, whatever. Fine. She's, she's not very maternal. She feels a lot more like a friend um, or like a roommate that you get closer to as you spend more time with her. (laughs) because She's, she's, she's not trying to mother him. She's not sort of worried about taking care of his needs constantly, but if she notices something, she'll say something, or if he asks for something, she'll address it kind of thing. Yeah. But she doesn't seem quite as proactive as you would expect from a mom or like as sort of involved in his life and wanting to know what's going on. Yeah. But they have there are a couple other scenes like uh, in the story with his mom, with his stepmom. He goes to a funeral with her for her uh, her sister. Um, Yeah. And he he knows that she's going to be uncomfortable. And so he deliberately accompanies her. Yeah. um, So maybe that's like kind of support her. That's sort of a strengthening of the the bond between them. Yeah, um, I thought it was weird that he goes to the hospital by himself every time. Like, that I think just that might just be. Here. Is that a cultural? I think thing? that might just be a cultural thing. I mean, sort of similar to like the way that like very young Japanese kids will just like walk to school or like take the you know train to school or whatever. Yeah, I guess. Anyway, yeah, it, it wasn't clear to me. I if think that, that was a yeah. comment on her, or if that's just cultural. <laughs> I, I think it's more just cultural, but I was also. That did that did strike me as well, and then also, I was I've been I was wondering about this. There there's a there's a scene where she cuts herself, and I was wondering if like is that supposed to be or have been deliberate? Do we have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I remember it crossed my mind that it might like, have been deliberate, but then the way she, like she's cooking, I believe she's uh, cooking, and it's kind and of a deep gash, her. and then she yeah. sort of starts laughing, right? Uh. Yeah, yeah, I think I think I remember it being essentially ambiguous as to whether she was just so deeply depressed about how things are going with like the marriage, I guess that yeah, um, she on impulse cuts herself, right, or whether it was genuinely an accident, right. I mean, I think you could you could sort of read it as a like maybe impulsive, you know, maybe I'm cutting these uh, carrots and maybe I'll just cut myself. Yeah, and see how it is, sort of thing. She does seem to be very deeply non-judgmental. So when when the surgery comes up, she doesn't pressure him one way or the other, right? Mm-hmm. She 
just sort of says, this is a big decision. You should take some time to think about it, but this is, you know, something we can do and will probably improve your life. And, you know, sort of gives a, uh, you know, very basic take on it, but isn't, isn't pushing him in one direction or the other and really respects his ability to make that choice. And she also doesn't push him like after the incident uh, at the end of the book, um, he says that, you know, he stopped going to school and she's not like pushing him to like go back to school. And she's like keeping all the uh, like school administrators or whatever out of the house, you know, so they don't like pressure him or, you know. Yeah. Yeah. By, By the end of the book, she's like such a, like an important figure for solidarity and for him yeah. to be able to like get through what he's getting through. And he finally tells her everything, right? Yeah. She says, she's like, will you tell me what happened? And he decides, okay. And then just sort of tells her everything. And she listens and she understands. She says, you know, we can do whatever you want. Like you can stop going to school. You can change schools, like whatever, mm-hmm. whatever you need, we'll figure it out kind of thing. And so, yeah, at least, at least for me, you know, there's sort of this deep, like, yes, thank you. You know, someone finally <laughs> taking care of this narrator. Yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah, I guess maybe I don't have, particularly profound thoughts about the mom uh the stepmom character but i do think there's a way in which like you know from like the beginning of the book where she has this like honestly kind of awkward interactions with her stepson yeah they seem awkward around each other uh you know but by the end of the book it's like you know maybe the like one solid relationship he has in his life and you know maybe something he can sort of build on you know going forward presuming that probably you know they end up staying together as you know uh, mother and son yeah yeah i mean you get the sense that he's sort of lost kojima and then his mom's about to lose her husband um it doesn't there's no sense of loss between him and his dad right it seems like the impact of that is primarily that his stepmom (laughs) is losing her husband um and then the two of them yeah you know have built a bond together yeah um should we talk about heaven yeah i I really don't understand. So my please, theory is if you that, have a theory. Is that it doesn't actually exist. That it's just something that Kojima made up. <laughs> that it's not uh, an actual painting. So so basically, um, the the first well, so they uh, Kojima and the narrator they they meet up for the first time maybe in like a playground or something like that, and they have a you know kind yeah they of meet up I think a couple times. I think it's really just that one time in person. And then they start like more frequently like writing letters like back and forth. Did they not go to that staircase thing first? Mm, The like fire escape. I think that comes after. Mm. But but point being that like during the summer on the first day of summer, it's this big important event in the story and, you know, sort of the life of the narrator. Uh, They go on this uh, expedition to a museum. Well, to heaven. Uh, Kojima tells, you know, the narrator, you know, I want to take you to heaven. And then it ends up being a museum. And in particular, it's, it's an art museum. Yeah. Yeah. And like a town over they take the train. Mm-hmm. And it's a painting. Yeah. So they're so they're they're working their way through the galleries. And then um, at some point they go and they sit outside and yeah. um, Kojima starts telling him various things. So she tells him about the painting or heaven. She says, heaven is a painting like further down in the galleries that we haven't mm-hmm. gotten to. Yeah. It's um, like the 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 name of the painting isn't actually heaven, but I renamed it because it's what she calls it. You know, the, the actual name is boring. Yeah. So then she my recollection of her description is that it, it is showing two lovers who have been through something really painful and are now not going through that painful thing. And their necks are like really long and distorted. So she sort of describes them as having this like real freedom of movement. 
and then they're eating cake together. That's that's my my recollection of how she describes the painting. I think that's pretty good. I, uh, you know, my my thought was that, and this is obviously just speculation because they don't end up seeing this painting. Right. Um. They sort of, um. Gojima has like a bit of an emotional breakdown. Yeah. And they yeah, don't go yeah. back into the museum afterwards. Yeah. Basically. Basically. Um. But yeah, I I think it's like you know she's essentially describing like maybe the relationship that she would like to have with the narrator like at some point yeah you know it's like the they're the people in the they're the figures in the painting right and like okay maybe there is a painting <laughs> in the museum but maybe it was just like you know this is a place that she really likes and she wants to take them there yeah it's like a pretty elaborate fiction for her to invent Sure, but I I feel like she's the kind of like fictional character that like would invent something like that, don't you, you think? You could just say like I like this museum and I think of it as heaven, but like then to be like, oh no, heaven is this very specific painting <laughs> that has well, this don't... very specific type of imagery, but we're not going to go see it because like, yeah. you can't find out that I'm making all this up. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but maybe not. But that, that I mean, was my it, thought. It, like, is yeah. That... I think I think that's actually a pretty good read. And I think it maybe doesn't make so much sense in the story, but it makes sense as the yeah. author's perspective. The author is like, heaven is this very specific and hard to understand thing that a group of people have made up to right. convince you to act in a certain way. That's also basically what Nietzsche would say, right? Is that Kojima yeah. is saying like, this is this, this, this thing that I'm telling you is real, but like, it's not actually real. And she wants you to act all meek and humble and whatever. Yeah. Um, that after the suffering, there's this sort of amazing, you know, blissful experience um and then you don't ever get to see it and i think this is this is if if that is correct this is representative of, of one of the things i don't know how i feel about the book which is that i think it reads really well as like a sort of philosophical like philosophical investigation or allegory mm -hmm. um but as like a straight sort of believable account of things that happen to people in the world it's like not as believable like i think this this event right is not that believable um, but it, it makes for a good so sort of philosophical like explication of sort of one way to think yeah. about heaven. And similarly, like, I don't think the kids are written like they don't talk like middle <laughs> schoolers, right? Like when Momose is explaining his view on nihilism, like that's not a 14 year old speaking. And when Kojima is explaining like her view on sort of being good and whatever, like that definitely doesn't sound like a 14 year old speaking. Uh, I, I guess so. I mean, you know, there are 14 year olds and then there are 14 year olds. Um, yeah, but like, her, like, okay, so the, the the narrator and Kojima like struggle to get good grades. Uh, like, well, it's not like, they, it's not like, I I don't know, I don't I don't get the uh, Kojima definitely, but I think that's mainly because she's just kind of checked out of school. No, and, they, in their letters they talk about like, oh man, like I'm worried I'm gonna get an F on this thing. And... Yeah, but the narrator, I don't know that we actually know like, is he like a really bad student or not? Um, I think a lot of it is just like, you know. He has trouble, like, like particularly, like, after he gets his nose broken and stuff, like, he can't focus in school anymore and stuff. But, like, he loves to read. Like, you know, he's doing that all the time. I don't think he, I didn't really get the sense that he was, yeah. you know, a particularly, you know, either, like, not a good student necessarily. Like, I got the impression more that he was just kind okay. of, like, a middle Even of the Momose, road. Even say who is clearly a good student and maybe a prodigy, like, <laughs> is, is, it's... You, you don't I think mean, he would have had that, no, you know, no, his bag there's, there, there's not a 14-year-old who can, like, lay out paragraphs of nihilism on the spot. I don't uh, know. I don't know, man. I think, you know, maybe not giving 14-year-olds enough credit here. Um, I, I will also say that I think, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to evaluate, like, I'm sure this kind of bullying does exist or, you know, 
Um, but yeah, it is kind of like the the level of it seems extreme. And yes. then also the fact that like, okay, no no figures of authority, no teachers are like doing anything about it. Right. This. Nobody's noticed that like they're pushing <laughs> the girl down in class or making yeah. the kid l- run laps or locking and, him like, in closets or making me chalk. Yeah. A lot of that could be hidden from teachers or, you know, maybe teachers see something, but it's like, ah, oh, I don't want to have to deal with that. So I'm just going to let it go. But yeah, yeah the, think... the, the extent of the sort of, you know, the, the absence of any you know kind of figure of authority to do anything about this does seem uh, stretches credulity a little bit. Yeah, I think... but I also think that that happens. I think yeah, that yeah. Happen. I, I will say that I've recently encountered some firsthand accounts of bullying that also really shocked me with how far they went mm-hmm. um, without people getting in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think part of it is that, you know, in a busy school, like there's only so much teachers can do. And then part of it is I think teachers really rely on students to tell them about stuff they don't see and to tell ha- have students tell them when stuff crosses the line, right? It can be hard to tell when people are just joking around or when they don't mean it or when it's not that serious um, and when it is really serious and just no one ever says anything. And that was, that was one of my questions. And, and I think, I think it's true that a lot of kids who are bullied never say anything to anyone. And I'm curious about, I don't know. I mean, mean, not that either of us are experts on bullying, but like, why why don't, (laughs) why don't they, like he could have just told his mom or told a teacher and potentially gotten this resolved much sooner. And he doesn't. Well, I I do think, I mean, yeah. Sorry, I guess I guess what I would say is that it seems pretty clear that, you know, he thinks that like saying something about it would just make it worse, like in the long term, like it wouldn't actually solve anything. Yeah. Like, think- uh, like maybe they would stop bullying him for a bit, but then like eventually they go back to bullying him. Right. Or it maybe, worse you know, because like there's retribution for having yeah. tattled. Yeah. And I think that's. You know, that seems pretty true to me in terms of like how kids would respond to this kind of situation or, you know, some kids might. Yeah. And I think it's hard in his position, right? Because you don't really have proof. And also, if you just tell about one incident, most of the incidents are like bad, but not bad enough on their own to merit the kind of punishment that that like years long string of abuse merits. And it's hard, like as a 14 year old who, if you're a real 14 year old and you aren't Nietzsche, um, so like articulately <laughs> lay out a series of events, like a fact pattern that is helpful for adults to walk through. Right. Um, so I think, I think he's able to do that finally at the end when he just tells his stepmom everything. And so she's able to see the full scope of what's happened. Um, but yeah, maybe it's hard to feel like you can really do that with a teacher or someone else that they'll believe you. Um, I think also there's something where if you're, if you're consistently victimized, you are robbed of your feeling of agency that even if you have agency, it just doesn't feel that way anymore. And, and the narrator acts like this, right? Like he just yeah. acts really passive all the time. Yeah. And even though like as an outsider, you're like, no, you could do something. <laughs> he just doesn't actually that like, that doesn't feel real to him at yeah. all. Yeah. Which is why like when he learns that, uh, I mean, the, the reason he thinks that nothing can be done about his lazy eye is I guess he had a surgery when he was younger and it didn't work. Yeah. So he he just kind of assumed that like oh he's stuck with a lazy eye forever and right. he's never always going to get bullied it. for it. And that's why when the doctor, you know, just sort of offhandedly mentions or asks him, you know, Arch, don't you want to do something about that? Um, you know, it, it kind of throws him for a loop and he starts imagining like, oh, well, maybe my life will could improve, you know, I I dress this lazy eye thing first. 
but yeah, yeah there, there, there are multiple points in the story where he's basically, you know, thinking in these cycles of like, well, will it ever stop? And like, he, at one point, he's like contemplating, well, maybe I should just drop out of middle school. And then he's like, well, is that even legal? And then if I drop out of middle school, you know, what will I do with my life? Who will hire? Who will hire a middle school drop? I want to say he he like contemplates yeah. suicide at one point. Yeah, yeah, I um, think he does. And there's a part where they reflect or not reflect, but he he mentions like hearing on the news about like a suicide of a mm. you know a middle school or at a never school. Right. And, you know, his thoughts are like, you know, the. Uh, the like teacher figures and other students that like talk about it and all talk about how like oh nobody would have suspected and you know whatever else so that's all mm-hmm. you know just a show and of course they knew and that sort of thing so yeah, yeah it's this very fatalistic you know he has this very fatalistic way of looking at the world and his position in it yeah which, i think there is there's you know, also a... is, is understandable there is like a cultural (laughs) element here where like i have no idea what japanese schools are like and japanese culture is very different in terms of um being you know kind of hierarchical and very different to authority and things like that and so Mm -hmm. it's possible there are elements of that that make it harder to talk to an authority figure about what's going on or uh, to tell on your you know fellow students or also make it um, yeah i don't know like maybe maybe, also... bullying, maybe this is more realistic bullying for 2010s japan than it is for 2022 america yeah. or maybe it's not i don't know well and i think like nanomia you know the way he's introduced he's the like school celebrity he's the best student <laughs> and there's there's maybe this sense in which like he's untouchable yeah I mean, the, the teachers do love him like right. that is that is you know, known. That so they probably just see him as yeah Right. No, that's fair. So, you know, if, if the narrator was to say, you know, actually, he's bullying me every day or whatever else to a teacher, you know, maybe the teacher wouldn't believe him. Or at least yeah. that's what, you know, the narrator thinks. The teacher yeah. And maybe and maybe they wouldn't. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, maybe maybe the stereotype that I brought up in the beginning about how, you know, it's just so unlikely that someone would be popular and charming <laughs> and intelligent, like the best student, but also be a bully that the teacher would also think like, no, 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 he's he's two of these three. He can't be all three because that doesn't happen. That's right. Um, that's right. That's that's why you can get away. I mean, with it, and I think I think I think the narrator makes him that way, or it's not the narrator. The author makes him that way from kind of a Nietzschean perspective, right? He is the Ubermensch, where he's like good at everything, and yeah. so in the Nietzschean kind of ethics, quote unquote, uh, it gives him you know the well, right or the license, power to just do whatever yeah, he to wants do whatever. to do. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, that's that book, I guess. Yeah, it was a good one. It was yeah. Start started slow for me. Uh, <laughs> But uh, definitely, definitely picked up and it's very short. So, you know, it was like there were two hours of slowness and then an hour of fastness. And then that was the book. Yeah. No, I, uh, I think that's good. I was because when you Mark, Mark text me that, you know, he wasn't really into it for like 60% of the book and then <laughs> enjoyed it. So, and I was, yeah. Like after, after rereading it, or re-listening to it for the first time, I I was sort of questioning my initial take on like, you know, was would this be a good book to talk about? And yeah. do I even do I even want to talk about it given <laughs> given some of the subject matter? Yeah, I mean, yeah, we don't. Anyway, yeah, yeah there there is subject matter you don't want to just spend a ton of time dwelling on. Yeah, um, I, I I do wonder if the first two thirds of what I thought were kind of slow and boring, if that was necessary for the book. Or if that is a result of someone whose forte maybe is writing oh, yeah. short stories, trying to I write did, a novel. I did want to say that I think, uh, 
I guess maybe an aspect of the story that I kind of liked, or maybe she does well, is she has these like very unique sort of phrasings that she gives the characters. Like, uh, what am I thinking about? Well, the whole like half a meme thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's good. Um, yeah. So, so Ko- Ko- Kojima has this term that she calls half a meme, like dopamine. Yeah, um, and she'll take other emotions and put them as half a meme or sad. Yeah, or there's like your every Sunday best or <laughs> your everyday best. Uh, someday, someday best. You're, you're, you're someday best. Yeah. Yeah. She, she put best. her some someday best on. Yeah. That um, that, that read like a 14 year old. <laughs> yeah. See, I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm failing to think of the other examples, but you know, it's it's things like that, and I think that's particularly prevalent in the first like half of the book, where a lot of it's well, you know, the they're they're exchanging these letters, so you know, there's this kind of written okay format too. You listen to this, right? Yeah. It is. So when the narrator is reading the letters, because there, there, you'll have several letters in a mm-hmm. row. Um, did did the narrator change voice to represent which character was writing the letters? No, um, because no, this was a narrator that it was just I, one voice, just the right, right. Know. But did they, you know, they'll sometimes narrators do like character voices. Well, right? yeah, yeah. But no, this 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 narration was just same just voice straight. throughout the whole story. Interesting from the. From the narrator character. Okay, so I I found the letters extremely confusing. Um, <laughs> so the first time we encounter them, it seems very clear to me that they are all written by the same person because of the things they are referencing and the gaps mm. in between them. And the next time we encounter them, it seems like they're toggling between the two people. I could never tell who was writing which letter. Uh, or, oh, or when okay. I thought I knew, like I, I was like, oh, this one has to be written by Kojima. The next one... Anyway, like they didn't seem to follow a pattern of who wrote which one. And so I just sort of ended up reading them without even trying to figure out who was writing uh, each, each one. Yeah, I'd have to think about that. I think listening to it, it generally seemed pretty clear to me, like who was writing which letter. Although maybe not. I might have gotten kind of mixed up at some point and mistaken a Kojima letter for one of the narrators and vice versa. I don't I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of think they were all written by the same person. But it's not clear which one. No, Whether these are all letters no. he got from okay. Kojima. I definitely think that's not true. Um, but in I the think first set, there I think are it's gaps a letter in between exchange. where he's like, "They say, oh, what do you think of this? Like, how would you describe me walking <laughs> through this puddle?' Right? I and think, then, and then the next one is like, "Oh, I loved how you described me walking through that puddle." Yeah, I guess that's true. So maybe all from Kojima. Yeah, maybe. But then Although, there are other things that come up where it can't be anyway. Yeah. I, I, I'm just gonna. I, Blanket I think, state. It was inconsistent and confusing. I, I think it's both. I think I think you get letters from both of them, but I'm sort of failing to think. You know. Yeah. Do do they actually alternate? That's sort of how it. it read Unless to this me, was supposed like, to be a clever to... literary device, I think she should have like denoted somehow who they were <laughs> from because it was confusing. And then I, I wonder if that contributed to some degree with my disengagement with that part of the book because I was like, I I can't even tell who's saying what. Could be. Um, six B, six B pencil. Well, one of them says. I think it's Kojima says that uh, the narrator's voice reminds her of a 6B, which is the best kind of pencil. Yeah, see, I wasn't sure who said that about whom. Because <laughs> it, I, it, I couldn't keep it straight. So yeah, one of them describes the other. Anyway, there's a whole series of things where their letters are like their interpersonal interaction, and I can't tell who's talking to. Yeah. Well, dang, I don't, yeah. You know, <laughs> now that you say that, I guess I'm questioning my sort of presumption of like who wrote which letters i don't know that it's hugely important though to be honest like no. the important part is just that they're like exchanging these letters 
And I think I, I also presume that like more of them are written by Kojima um, because a few of the times like the narrator talks about how like, you know, he feels like he has trouble like writing, you know, knowing what to write or writing. Yeah, there, there are a few where he, you know, I mean, obviously the first one he gets is clearly from Kojima. And then towards the end, there's a point where she's writing him a bunch. And like after the like a human soccer incident, he like right. just doesn't have the sort of willpower to write back. And so he gets them and he appreciates them, but he can't write back. And yeah. Yeah. So in some cases it's clear. Yeah. Yeah, there was never, I mean, sort of speaking to the whole like Japanese aspect of it, the the author Ruth Ozeki, she wrote a book for the time being. And it's not, I don't know, it's not the entire focus of the story, but a big part of it is about the experience of this, I think she's supposed to be a high school age girl who's getting relentlessly bullied in mm. a kind of similar, you know, similar manner. So... I do sort of wonder that'd be something to that'd be something that to do research a, about, you know, like the the sort of cult, it is. yeah, the culture of like Japanese schools and you know, does this you know does this sort of thing happen often and whatever yeah, else, you know, yeah. Well, okay, dude. Well, uh, goodbye, right. and we'll talk to you next time. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. All right, bye. See you. All right, folks, uh, Max here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Champs at the Lit. Uh, thanks to Wes Braver for creating our theme music. Uh, this may, uh, may be the last episode of the podcast. Uh, Mark and I have not recorded um, another episode. Uh, so we'll see. I don't know if anything is going to come down the podcast pipeline. Um, I will tell you that the two books Mark and I have uh, talked about, talking about, um, one is The Last Testament of Mary by Colm Toybeam, uh Irish author. And The Last Testament of Mary is about the um, the sort of the final days of Christ and his crucifixion, um, as told from the perspective of, uh, his mother, Mary, and sort of in a kind of interrogation setting after the events, and she's being sort of interviewed by, uh, some of the disciples uh, of Christ. Um, it's an interesting, it's pretty short, it's an interesting book, and, uh, Colm Tobin is a really good author. I'd, I'd recommend a lot of things that he's written. Uh, he actually just came out with another book. Um, it's a collection of his essays, uh, things that he's written for the London Review of Books and other publications. Um, and then the other book we've talked about doing uh, an episode on is The Years by Annie Now, a French author it's a memoir of her life and it goes from I'm not quite sure exactly the time frame uh, I know she talks about being a young mother during the 1968 uh, sort of student protest in France and sort of feeling uh, both a part of those but also outside because she's a little bit older 
but there's a there's some stuff that she covers that's before that. Uh, but it's this really interesting interweaving of her her own sort of uh, personal biography and reflections on you know her life and what was going on at the various stages in her life and the sort of the larger context of what was happening in French society, at least from her perspective, what was happening. And it goes until I think it ends somewhere in the 2000s, maybe maybe as late as 2008, but I, I can't quite remember. In any case, uh, you know whether Mark and I do an episode on either of those books, um, they are both worth reading, and I would recommend them. And uh, maybe I'll uh, be talking to you in the future, maybe not. But uh, in the meantime, uh, stay stay happy and healthy, I guess, or or something. All right. Bye-bye.